This morning, uh, for our first Sunday of our mission month, we have a guest speaker. Uh, he's Dr. Jeff Pugh. I must confess that I don't really know him enough, but I do know his father. Uh, when I was a youth pastor in a local church in Blackburn South, uh, his father, after retirement, used to walk to uh, our church to, uh, to worship, and he sometimes also preached in that service as well. Uh, Jeff was the Dean of Research at Melbourne School of Theology for approximately 10 years, and currently he is doing some freelance theological teaching in Southeast Asia. Uh, I will just uh, invite uh, Jeff to come now and to bring God's word to us. Thank you, Jeff, for coming. Thank you. Well, thank you for your invitation and your welcome, Glenn and Caroline. And uh, it's terrific to be here to open God's word <clears throat> this morning from John's gospel. If you turn with me, uh, it's appropriate time of year. We're sort of between Pentecost and Easter. <clears throat> We're going to look at the last chapter in John's Gospel, John chapter 21, and it'd be good to keep your Bibles with you um, as I read and also as we go through the sermon. So John chapter 21 reads like this. After this, <clears throat> Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they are not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging in the net full of fish, for they were not afar off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So someone went aboard and uh, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish and this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
and he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And he, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who was also leaning back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad amongst the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he wasn't to die, but that if this is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's briefly pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for John. We thank you for Peter. We thank you for this story. We thank you for this moment. We pray that the experience that these people had of this revelation would be somewhat our own this morning. Open our eyes to understand it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage we've just read, the last chapter of John's Gospel, is uh, called the epilogue to John's Gospel. Uh, John's Gospel begins with a prologue and ends with an epilogue. But uh, I find this really quite peculiar. I don't know if you find that a little bit strange, that it really does seem like an afterthought. It doesn't seem to fit. I mean, the previous chapter... John 20 finished with verse uh, 31, which would have been a beautiful and complete ending. We had the uh, experience of the disciples with the resurrection, uh, three, two or three uh, experiences of the resurrected Christ, and then John finishes with those epochal words. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that seems to be the theme of the whole book. Why then this epilogue? I mean, we don't even go to the ascension. We don't have a great commission. We don't have a promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we have a story about a boys having a barbecue on a beach. It's not exactly how I'd finish it. It reminds me of uh, when I was a young kid in the early days of television watching reruns and uh, Australian television was beset with so many American sitcoms uh, that uh, were already reruns. And I can still remember watching things like McHale's Navy and uh, Jungle Jim and Tarzan. And frequently those storylines would finish and they'd reach their climax. You'd have the chase scene and all the baddies would be caught. But then you would, uh, before the credits came up, go to some goofy scene where... 
the chimpanzee would run off with a bathing suit or the dumb kid would say something stupid and everyone would have a hearty belly laugh and, and then the credits would come up. And it's one of those sort of epilogues here. It does seem to be a bit underplayed to, uh, to come from such a climax as the resurrection and the resurrection appearances down to this. But this is quite deliberate. And let's just immerse ourselves in the story, and I think we'll see why John finishes, of all things, with this particular story. The focus is upon Peter and that disciple, and we see that um, uh, Peter is in a pretty interesting emotional condition tucked in here in time between the cross and resurrection and the uh, ascension and then Pentecost uh, following that. And he's not comfortable in his own skin and he, he has a burr in his saddle. He can't sit still. And he decides that, uh, well, he can't sit waiting for Jesus. He can't sit waiting for uh, whatever's going to happen next. He's been told to go to Galilee. We read in the end of Mark's Gospel, but uh, this waiting is just not a comfortable place to be for Peter. That's not the sort of guy he is. And what he does know about is fishing. He's comfortable fishing. And so he says to six of the disciples, let's go fishing, and off they go to have uh, <coughs> a night of it. Nighttime was the best time for fishing, and they head out on that lake where so many of the lessons of Jesus are learnt throughout the Gospels, and <clears throat> they fish all night and they catch absolutely nothing. And it's a still morning and they head back towards the shore and there's a figure on the shore and the figure yells out and the sound travels across the stillness of the waters in the early morning, no wind to interrupt the sound. And the, the voice says, uh, basically, um, so lads, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they admit, no, we didn't. It's been a very curious night not to catch one fish. It's as if all the fish are off on an in-service training day and they're just not there. And the disciples are empty. And Jesus, in a way that he has done once before, suggests that maybe they cast their net out on the other side of the boat and the disciples take that advice because maybe he can see something from the shore, a shoal that uh, is uh, uh, just outside the other side of the boat. And so they throw their nets out the right side of the boat and all of a sudden there's an incredible kerfuffle of fish. The fish are basically begging to be caught and they're leaping into the, into the net, so much so that uh, they can barely contain the fish and pull them in. It's taking all the strength of these six burly men to get these fish into the boat. Suddenly, the person who wrote this gospel, he refers to himself, uh, probably with a blaze of false modesty, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Suddenly, the penny drops and he realises, we've been here before. And he says, it is the Lord. Now, none of the disciples had caught on to that fact. But this is the, the situation they're in. And, and John says, it's the Lord. I mean, don't, don't you remember in Luke chapter 5 that this is how we began the journey with Jesus? It was exactly the same incident. And Jesus is taking them back to his first object lesson. And so his last object lesson is the same as the first. What a fascinating thing. 
And that object lesson is simply a game that these disciples would realise that fruitfulness in ministry follows obedience. Fruitfulness follows obedience. That's something which they are going to still depend on. They will not graduate from that fact into a different form of obedience. They won't become super Christians who don't need to obey. They are still going to be dependent upon the explicit command of Jesus if they are going to be fruitful in ministry. Well, that's the uh, the picture we have here. And But John is the master of storytelling and he's like a French Impressionist painter and the little things are the essential things. And when uh, Peter hears that it is the Lord, he does something curious. Uh, he, he clothes himself and then jumps into the water. I don't know about you, but... Uh, you know, when I go fishing, I don't put on my dressing gown and leap into the water. I, you tend to disrobe. But Peter clothes himself. There's something in that. He feels the need to cover up as he leaps into this water and comes to see his beloved friend, the Lord Jesus, again at the shore. And uh, we read that at that time, as he is swimming in and he's greeting Jesus, the others are bringing the boat in, and as they'd get near the shallows, they'd, if there was a keel, they'd be pulling it up. If there was a rudder, they'd be pulling it up. And the boat would be becoming increasingly unstable. And so he has to go back and help them pull these, these, this boat before it capsizes with fish and help it uh, get it in. And they come in and uh, Jesus already got a fire there and Jesus is already um, ready for them and they count the fish. There's 153 of them. We don't want to read anything into that symbolism. It doesn't stand for the United Nations or uh, anything. It's, uh, that's the nature of it. They were so stunned, they decided to count the fish. And uh, that Jesus has breakfast with them. No one says, uh, who are you, sir? They all recognise Jesus. This is another sight. This is the third time in verse 14 that they have seen Jesus. No sooner have they had breakfast, and this is one of those high times. It's great to be with Jesus again. Jesus and the boys, back as things should be. It's not going to be how things will end. <clears throat> it's just a wonderful moment. They're in the present. But right then, just when they're enjoying this, and Peter himself has uh, had his fill, Jesus turns to him and he eyeballs him. And out of left field, Jesus just asks this incredible question. He says, Simon, son of John, so you love me more than these? And uh, it's an interesting question, but I think Peter initially and immediately knew what Jesus was referring to. In fact, Pastor Glenn referred to this last week. This scene is uh, taking us back to the Last Supper, which we have just commemorated here. And this, at this Last Supper, it was Peter who made the incredible boast that though the rest of these will deny you, I will never deny you. you know, I'm made of different stuff. And Peter made this incredible boast at that meal that his love was truer than those of those around him. And so he feels a little bit uncomfortable about that and and he just says to the Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he attempts to deflect the question. 
Jesus replies, and his reply is actually a recommission to the pastoral role of the apostle. He says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus again, like a strange uncle at a Christmas party, says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I just said so. And Jesus doesn't let it rest. He says, tend my sheep. Again, a word of recommissioning. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter was grieved because he'd said to him, you know, the implication is that you don't believe I'm telling you the truth. And just as Peter is getting all hot and indignant, suddenly this penny drops. And Peter realises that Jesus has orchestrated this whole event to take him back to his moment of failure. Jesus takes him back to the night when he prophesied himself that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crowed. And back in that picture we have, that night when Peter followed into the courtyard of the high priest to see the mock trial that night. And as he drew near to that fire that night, he again was challenged that you're one of them. And Peter denied it. Another member of the servants of the high priest confronted him again. I, I know you're one of them. And the different Gospels have different variants on this, but Peter denied it again vehemently. He doesn't just deny the fact he's denying his saviour, the one he said he'd never leave. And right at that moment as Jesus is being interrogated and getting slapped around pretty vigorously, Peter must have grimaced. And those who are watching him suddenly go, you are one of them. In fact, one of the people who recognised him was a relative of the fellow that had Peter had taken off his ear with his sword in the same hour, as if you could forget that, at which time Peter lost it and was vehement and swearing he cursed and took a curse upon himself. Peter at that moment would have looked, and it says in John's Gospel that Jesus saw Peter and Peter saw Christ. Their eyeballs met again. And Jesus takes Peter right back to that moment. He will not let Peter fudge his personal history. This is salt in the wound that Peter cannot deflect. So he denies me three times. I ask the question three times. Do you really love me? Do your words mean anything? This is giving us another principle, not just the object lesson that fruitfulness follows obedience, but I put it this way, that we are never more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing Christ. We will never be more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing Christ. Peter honestly thought that he could jolly Jesus along. It was effectively an insult that if he kept things superficial and light, 
Jesus would be satisfied with that sort of relationship. But Jesus is not interested in a relationship with us which is a construction of our imagination. Jesus is not interested in building a relationship with the person we wish we were, the person we'd like to project that we are. He wants a relationship with the the sinner that we really are. And Jesus will not substitute truth for superficiality. We're never more than who we really are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing Christ. But this is not just an insult to Jesus. It's actually Peter's response is actually an enacted heresy. He's covering up. His attempt to keep things superficial shows us that he has not really understood the significance of what has happened at Calvary only a few moments earlier in the story. He has not understood the significance of the resurrection, though he knows the facts of it. It hasn't dawned on him that the cross was about cleansing, that the crosses was about reconciliation. Or if he's understood that in terms of some sort of sacrificial sense, he hasn't understood that the resurrection speaks of the fact that he is justified, made righteous with God. These things have not dawned on him. It reminds me so much of a a famous passage, which I, I love out of Hebrews, which speaks of the effect of Jesus. Uh, death. It says to the effect of the blood of bulls and goats in Hebrews 9.13, sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Like the old covenant sacrifice covered things superficially. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you notice what it's purified? Not just our record, not just our identity, but our conscience. We are not just cleansed by the blood of Christ objectively, but Christ wants us to experience that cleansing subjectively, that we might also know that we can be restored. Role restoration is simple. But soul restoration is a much more precise surgery. And that is what Peter is going through here. Jesus has to take him back to that burr in the saddle. He has to extract the infection from that wound by pressing him again against the cross of Christ. And the cross is the gauze that takes out this poison of a bad conscience. Peter would gladly have what I would call an outer tent solution. He would keep things superficial, but to do that is to keep Christ distant. The death of Christ is God's invitation that we might come not into the outer court, but into the holy of holies itself. That we might be present and comfortably present in the presence of the holy Christ. That is the impact of Calvary. And that is what Christ wants Peter to understand. This is not a time to return to the falsehood of Judaism. This is a time 
to really experience the power of the gospel. Well, right then, Jesus changes tune with Peter. And he says something I need to tell you. Basically, you know, you're going to have an arrested development. You're not going to last the course. And Jesus speaks about the fact that his, his ministry life and his personal life will end abruptly. He'll be arrested. In many ways, Jesus is saying, you're going to bear the honour of dying and recapitulating in some ways the, what my death was. Not that you're dying for the world, but uh, that's the manner of your death. And you can see why it's important that Christ does this with Peter. I mean, how would it be if how many years later, a decade or so later, uh, Peter is expecting life to end up like a rosy sitcom. And he's expecting that, you know, the kingdom of God will come unambiguously and he'll be appreciated. The disciples all expected that and that Jesus will be the flavour of the month. And then he goes and gets arrested. And then he is tried and and sentenced to death. Peter would never be able to cope with that moment. And at that moment he'd think, why didn't Jesus tell me? Well, this is why Jesus tells him here, so that at that time he will be forearmed and he will have the stamina of faith to see through that moment. And right at that point, Peter turns and he notices as they're trundling along the beach together, the disciple who Jesus loved, that's the guy who wrote this book, is meandering along behind him. And, and Peter, is, it's going to take a while for, for Peter to become the sanctified Peter we read about later on. The Holy Spirit has not come as yet and he's still the secular Peter, not the sanctified Peter. And he looks around and he sees John and there's a little bit of rivalry there. And he says, well, what about this guy? You know, what, what's he going to go through? Uh, how's he going to end? And uh, that's typical of Peter. He, he is, is so typical of the average male. <laughs> uh, it, it's important for Peter that he live a life of significance, that something happens that at least leaves his mark in history. And... But it's not enough for Peter just to do something significant. It's His whole life has been one of comparison. He needs to be as significant as an ex-bloke, not just significant in the eyes of God. Peter's horizons are a little too low, and they're still too low at this point. And Jesus picks him up on this and gives him a verbal rap over the knuckles right then. And, and Peter says, that's none of your business. What is that to you? That's my business. You follow me. Now those crazy three words are profoundly simple. And we in our lives can live the life of comparison. We can worry about how we're going, whether our life has been fulfilled. And you can live that life by measuring it according to how your neighbours are going. Pastors are just as prone to this as any person in the pew. A couple of years ago, I was in a a college in New South Wales taking a pastor's conference. And we had a workshop during that day and uh, we went into a small room. 
uh, about this size with uh, uh, about 20 pastors sitting around. And uh, <clears throat> I was new to them. I didn't know anyone in the room. So I thought before we start, why don't we just go around and just say a little bit about each other, explain the, something about where you come from, what is your ministry and um, why you're doing this course. And unfortunately, the first guy that I pointed to, I didn't know him from a bar of soap. I knew he wasn't a bar of soap. That's about all. But I looked at him and, I, and he, he said, oh, I'm so, so I'm the senior pastor of X church and we're running about 550 people and uh, blah, da, 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 da. And I said, well, thank you for that. And nice to meet you. And we went to the next person. And it set a train adrift right then and the next guy said well i'm pastor so-and-so and i come from out the other side of sydney and we we have about three dozen people but we're growing and then the next guy said well what's we've got a very good youth ministry and our music and it was like an infection that took off and everyone had to compare themselves to the previous testimony now Basically, Jesus has simplified the Christian life and Christian obedience here when he said those words, three words, you follow me. When all the records are opened and the scrapbooks are opened of our lives in that day when we see him eyeballing us, Christ will not ask us, he will not ask anyone, hey, but were you influential? Or what was the size of your stage? What was your salary? Did you get published? Those things won't matter at all. He will ask, were you obedient? Did you fulfil the course I gave you? That is what he will ask. That calling is not a competition. You cannot read faithfulness from circumstances. But obedience is following our responsibilities through to completion. That might be praying and leading a relative to the Lord, a neighbour. It might be something that no one will ever know about, except the one we follow. And that's the nature of Christian success, when we can say, but we followed him. Well, isn't it an astounding story? Why did John finish such a great book with a barbecue? It's because this epilogue recalls the prologue. The prologue has those profound words that end it, where we read that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And that's what we see here. John wants to leave us with an impression of the sort of God we follow. One who is full of grace and mercy, who restores immediately the failures. We, like Peter, might think of things in our lives this morning where we say, oh Lord, just like Peter, only you know. The only consistent thing about our lives is our consistent disappointment. 
We're consistently inconsistent if we're honest. And like Peter, we can look at Christ eyeball to eyeball and he will restore us immediately to that ministry to which he has called each of us. He has unfinished business with each of us. The most profound thing you can do that will change your life is to learn this Petrine prayer, this profound, simple prayer, where we simply say to the Lord, Lord, you know. And that is the start of liberation and restoration and reconciliation and cleansing. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, we thank you, Father, this morning that the Christ of this passage is indeed himself with us. We thank you that he is with us by virtue of the Spirit. We thank you for this incredible cosmic coincidence that the one who walked the beach resides within this hour. And those times when you eyeball us in our conscience, we pray we would realise the significance of what is happening there. That you're doing a work of surgery for our healing, for our cleansing and our restoration. Lord, teach us how to pray that courageous prayer. Lord, you know. You know everything. And from there, Lord, establish us again by the cleansing blood that cleanses conscience as well as body and soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeff, on behalf of Pathway Baptist Church, we want to say thank you for coming to share uh, this inspiring and encouraging message uh, to us. We appreciate you, you for coming and we wish you all the best as you continue to use your gifts to minister to many, many uh, nations on earth. Well, if I will, in response to what you were saying just now uh, in the class, if I were there, I would say, well, I'm a pastor of Pathway Baptist Church. And uh, we are just a group of sinners, broken people, journeying together in this race uh, till Christ returns. Uh, we run the race together. I always believe that the church is, uh, should be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. Let me just uh, finish off with a uh, pronouncement of benediction with an early church father uh, and dismiss you for this week ahead. Watch out. Be alert. Christ comes when you least expect it. Could be in the beggar on the street. Could be in the loved one at our table. Could be in the stranger in our church. It could be in the refugee on our shores. It could be in the hour of our birth. It could be in the hour of our death. With judgment and mercy, Christ comes. So watch out and be alert. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Have a blessed week.